a few years ago, a woman was arrested on her way to the post-Christmas sales in a car park in a shopping centre in Spain. She was carrying a bag with €20,000 inside. The money had been left there as the ransom payment for a kidnapping. This incident had started with the, the, when a man had received a photo showing his wife's hands and feet bound and a text message demanding the €20,000 for her release. The text also warned, her not, warned him not to tell anyone about it. But the man refused to comply. Instead, he went to the police who launched a search and planted a tracking device with the ransom. And this led to the arrest of this woman in the car park with the money. But what was most surprising in all of this was that the arrested woman was this man's wife. She was the supposed victim of the kidnapping. It turned out that she'd faked the whole thing. And when she was asked why she did this, she said, not because she wanted lots of money to spend in the sales, but she said this, it was to find out what her husband would be willing to do for her. She wanted to find out what her husband was willing to do for her. Now, of course, that's, a, that's an extreme example. But there are many people in the world who are desperate to know that they are really loved. They don't feel truly appreciated or treasured. So they're desperately looking for evidence to prove to themselves that they are valued, that they are treasured, that they are cherished. But this morning we're going to look again at the fact that Jesus has already demonstrated that to us. He has already declared to us just how much he loves us. When we were held in a very real and dangerous slavery to sin and to death, he paid the ransom price in full for us even though it cost them far more than we could ever imagine. And our next section of John's Gospel gives us a little insight into that. And we're going to read it now. It's in John chapter 12, verse 27, down to verse verse 36. So John chapter 12 and verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. Now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. 
The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law and and that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he'd finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Last week, we saw that Jesus knew that the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. Verse 23. The time had come for his majesty to be revealed, for his awesomeness to be demonstrated. But Jesus knew that this was going to happen, not going to happen through a spectacular miracle or a rise in popularity or being given a position of power. Instead, Jesus knew that this was going to happen through being lifted up from the earth. This was actually something that Jesus had talked about before, being lifted up from the earth. For example, I don't know if you remember, way back in John chapter 3, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus, the, the, the teacher of the law that he met at night, he said this, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. In the desert, Israel rebelled against God. And in judgment, God sent poisonous snakes into the camp, the nation of Israel. And many of the people there died. But when the people repented of their sin and called out to to God for help, God told Moses to lift up a bronze snake on a pole so that anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. The look of faith would lead to healing. And Jesus was saying, that, we would similar, that he would similarly be lifted up from the earth so that anyone who looks in faith to him would be healed. So when Jesus was talking about being lifted up from the earth, he wasn't talking about his ascension into glory, but he was actually talking about his crucifixion. And this is what John recognised. It said this in verse 33. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So Jesus knew that the time had come for him to be glorified. But he knew exactly what this would cost him. That this would cost him nothing less than the cross. And as he thought about this, he gave us a little insight into how this impacted him emotionally. He said these uh, these very uh, amazing words in verse 27. He said, Now my heart is troubled. As Jesus looked forward to the cross, he was in turmoil. He was agitated. He was shocked. As he thought about the cross, he was overwhelmed with horror and revulsion. Jesus was authentically, he was, he was emotionally authentic. He was emotionally real. 
He wasn't somebody who tried to suppress or hide his feelings. He experienced the same range of emotions that we do. And he wasn't afraid to express them. This is what he expressed a little bit later in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he told his disciples, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. So why was Jesus' heart troubled? Why was his soul overwhelmed with sorrow? Well, of course, this was in part because he knew the physical cost of the cross. Growing up, Jesus would no doubt have witnessed crucifixions before. As the Romans, they made sure that crosses holding the the dying, broken bodies of of people who had been crucified lined the, the main roads into cities. They did that so that the masses wouldn't rebel, to to warn them that if if they rebelled against the Roman rule, then this could happen to them. But Jesus wouldn't only just have seen this horrific sight. He'd also known from Psalm 22 the prophecy of what he was going to suffer. Psalm 22 says this, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. Can you imagine reading that knowing that that is a prophecy of your own suffering? That you're going to endure? In fact, crucifixion was so barbaric and so humiliating that Roman citizens were actually exempt from this. And cultured people in Greek and Roman societies would never talk about it. They wouldn't even mention the cross in polite company. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of people. For murderers, for traitors, especially for slaves. Only the lowest of the low would end up on a cross. So it's no wonder that the thought of it overwhelmed Jesus with horror and disgust. But for Jesus, the cross did not just mean physical pain. It meant a much greater spiritual agony. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed these words. uh, Matthew 26. My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. And this idea of this cup is an Old Testament image that we see a number of places in the Old Testament. And it's used as an image of God's wrath. So, for example, Jeremiah, he was told by God to take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath. This cup is the, is the cup of God's wrath, God's righteous and holy anger against sin. It's an expression of his intense hatred of sin because he is such a holy and loving God. So why should Jesus 
the holy, sinless, perfect Son of God, prayed desperately for this cup of God's wrath against sin to be taken from him. Why would he have to endure that cup of wrath? Well, it's because on the cross, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On the cross, all the wickedness and evil of every person who has ever lived was placed on Christ. Jesus literally became sin for us. And then all of God's holy hatred and righteous anger against our sin was poured out on Jesus. He suffered the payment that should have been ours. He took our death sentence. This is how Isaiah wrote about it about 700 years before Jesus As I said, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And in those three hours of darkness, in a way that goes beyond all our comprehension, Jesus was separated from his Father. And he experienced hell for us. That's why on the cross he quoted from that Psalm 22 and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He explains the forsakenness of God when God literally could have turned his back on on his son because he was experiencing the payment for our sin. So it's no wonder that in thinking about the cross, Jesus' heart was troubled. It's no wonder that everything within him recoiled from the thought of taking upon himself all the filth of this world. Of experiencing an eternity of hell for billions of people. From being separated from the one that he loved perfectly forever. And yet despite this, despite understanding the true cost of the cross... Jesus did not run from it. So he went went on to say in verse 27, And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Yes, emotionally, Jesus recoiled from the cross. Yes, the expectation of everything we go through deeply troubled him. But Jesus would not try to avoid it. He would not reject it. Instead, he was committed to going through it. As we just sang in that beautiful song, You 
chose the cross. Jesus was committed to fulfilling his mission. And in doing so, he was committed to honouring his Father. And so this is what he prayed, verse 28. Father, glorify your name. This was Jesus' greatest desire. Yes, the horror of the cross was so great that he prayed for that cup of God's wrath, if possible, to be taken from him. But his greater desire, his deeper commitment, his more intense prayer was to finish the work that his father had given him to do. This is what he he said in John chapter 4. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, after praying for this cup of God's wrath to be taken from him, he concluded, yet not as I will, but as you will. So even although the cost was so immense, Jesus chose the cross. It was not forced upon him. Evil men did not get the better of him. Circumstances did not overtake him. Instead, he voluntarily laid down his life to honour his Father, to reveal his glory, and to save people like you and me because he loved us so much. As he said earlier, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And if we are following Jesus today, if we call ourselves somebody who has put their trust in Jesus as a Christian, this should be reflected in our lives. If we love God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, then our greatest desire should be to honour Him with everything that we are and have. So our prayer should be, as Jesus taught us, Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And His will is that we will love other people with the same willingness to count the cost and lay down our lives. John writes in his letter, 1 John 3 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. That's the standard that we're called to. That's what it means to be walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Loving people with that commitment. Not demanding our own way. Not demanding our own comfort or our own safety or our own happiness or our, or our own, our own, our own. But instead seeking to glorify God by loving Him and loving others with a sacrificial costly love so Jesus chose the cross despite its cost and because of that though 
He won an amazing victory. The consequences of the cross are glorious. On the cross, this world was judged. Now is the time for judgment on this world, Jesus said. I don't know if you've heard people say this, but I've heard people say that people are basically good. Oh yeah, people, they're basically good. Yeah, sometimes they do some wrong things, but they're basically good. But at the cross, humanity rejected its creator. They condemned him. They ridiculed him. They flogged him. They nailed him to a piece of wood and hung him up to die. And so the cross judges this world. The cross reveals the true horror of sin in each of our lives. And yet the cross doesn't just reveal our guilt. The cross also pays for that guilt in full. On the cross, Jesus didn't just judge the world. He also bore the judgment that we deserved. And so there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we put our faith in the one who died for us, then we will never be condemned by God. We have been declared righteous forever. And we can celebrate that freedom. And so as a result on the cross, Satan was defeated. The prince of the world will be driven out. Didn't look like Satan was defeated when Jesus was on the cross. The cross looked like a victory for Satan. Looked like a victory for his forces of evil. The Son of God was rejected by his own people. He was mocked, belittled and scorned. He died in agony and shame and it looked like evil had triumphed. But the cross is not a tragedy. Instead, it's the greatest victory ever. On the cross, love conquered hatred. Good overcame evil. Sin was paid for in full. God's plan of salvation was realized. Death was crushed. And Satan was defeated. Because Jesus died so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The cross is a victory that we can celebrate today. And so today, we can come to God through Christ. Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, some people read that and say, oh, well, that means that everybody's going to be saved. doesn't matter what, what they do. doesn't matter how they respond to this message. Everybody's going to be saved. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, tragically, many people will, will not enter into God's kingdom because they will not accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And Jesus said that whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. If you don't accept Jesus' payment for our sin, if you don't accept that he died under the wrath of God for you, then that wrath remains on you. 
But what meant Jesus meant when he said he'll draw all men to himself is that because of the cross, the offer of the gospel is for everyone. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In being lifted up from the earth, Jesus will draw people from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation to be part of his kingdom. People from Ireland, people from Latvia, people from England, people from Cornwall, which is not really part of England, even though it kind of is. People from Scotland are even welcomed. It doesn't matter where we're from. It doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter what we haven't done. If we have put our faith in Jesus, then we have been forgiven. We have been declared righteous in God's sight. We've been adopted into God's family. We will forever be part of His family and in His presence. And all of this is to the glory of God. In response to Jesus' prayer to glorify uh, His name, a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Just like at his baptism and his transfiguration, God confirmed his approval of his son. Up to this point, Jesus had glorified his father through his obedient life, through his love and his compassion, through his amazing teaching, through his miraculous signs. But ultimately, it would be the cross that would glorify God. Because it's when we look to the cross... And we see the true wonder of God's grace and His justice and His holiness and His power and His love. God is glorified in Christ crucified. But sadly, many people just missed it all. Even though that voice was for their benefit, some there that, in the crowd that day just didn't understand what was going on. Do you read it? We spread in verse 29. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. And others that an angel had spoken to him. And then when Jesus revealed to them the consequences of the cross, the glorious consequences of the cross, again, many just didn't get it. This question in verse 34, we've heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? For them, they were so focused on the Messiah, fulfilling all the prophecies about him, being the, the sovereign king who would reign on David's throne forever, that they just couldn't understand or accept him also being the fulfillment of all the prophecies in the Bible, of the suffering servant who would be punished for our sin. Our minds were blinkered. And so they just couldn't accept it. And the cross remains crazy to many people today. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. Just laugh at it. They just think it's ridiculous. Why get so up, uh, so focused on somebody dying two thousand years ago on a, on a on a cross? 
Why make that the focus of our lives? But I don't know if you noticed that Jesus didn't really answer their objection here. Instead, he just emphasized the true challenge of the cross. After reminding them that his days of public ministry were almost over, he said, put your trust in the light while you have it. So that you may become sons of light. Questions are great. And I think it's important for us to think through the message of the cross. If you have questions and you have problems about what we've been looking at this morning, please come and speak to me about it. I would love to talk to you about it. But we need to make sure that we understand that this is not an emotional, uh, sorry, an intellectual exercise. The aim of it is not to have all our philosophical questions answered or to have a greater theological understanding. That's not the goal. That's not the aim. In fact, there are always going to be aspects of the cross that will go beyond our understanding. Be greater than what we can grasp. Instead, this is supposed to be a serious warning to us. And an amazing offer. The warning is that if we reject the light of the one who died for us on the cross then we'll go forever lost in darkness, unaware of the dangerous destination that awaits us. The consequences of rejecting Jesus are terrifying. But there's also this amazing offer that if we put our trust in the light, If we put our trust in Jesus as the one who counted the cost, who chose the cross, who paid the price of our sin, then we'll be rescued out of that dominion of darkness. And we'll be brought into the kingdom of God's Son forever. So that's the response that Jesus is calling us to make. The cross is a challenge to each and every one of us. How are we going to respond? What are we going to do? Are we going to reject the one who died for us in agony and shame? Or are we going to repent of our sin and put our trust in him and rejoice in him and rest in his salvation? The one who loved us so much that he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross.